0: Good morning again, if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1st Peter, Peter's first letter, chapter 3, 1st Peter chapter 3, I'll read verses 13 through 17, which will be our text for today as we continue our study through this great letter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to consider such strong exhortation and encouragement from your word. We are inadequate to render to ourselves the wisdom and knowledge that we need to live a life honorable to you and honorable before all men. So we thank you for such words as these to strengthen us and equip us for the complicated and often discouraging prospect of living righteously before a corrupt and condemned world. We pray that you would give us the strength to heed these words and obey. Cause us to be considerate to those who watch us, whether in our midst or at our workplaces, in our very own homes, Or in our different areas of service in the world. That they would have the same response that Peter envisions here. Help us understand how to have fearless endurance. And if you would pray for yourself right now. That the Lord would remove from your heart any distractions that would hinder you from hearing his word. And that that you would be able to receive it. And if you would also pray for me that my voice would hold up and that I would use words that would be understandable and clear and faithful. Father, we trust you with this time. Give us more trust of you. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Peter begins what I believe is a new section in his letter, signified by the word now. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Verse 13. This statement shows that suffering in and around the issues of submission, and honorable conduct that we've looked at from beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, that suffering really hasn't been an implicit part of this discussion. At least in the case of the slaves, that was implied. But suffering, per se, as we have attempted, as we attempt to live an honorable life, is more in the background, and we've tried to keep those off until now, because Peter has been keeping those situations off until now. This is also important when it comes to the question of dating 1 Peter. That means where do you place the date of its authorship? Because if this were during uh, Nero's rule as emperor of Rome, this rhetorical question wouldn't make any sense. Everyone would have in unison answered Nero to this statement if this is after state-sponsored Persecution broke out. But nonetheless, this statement prepares the hearers for that persecution that would eventually come. So this is much earlier in the game, if you will, when Christians were not welcome in certain aspects, rejected by the Jews, opposed as undesirables by Claudius, or even during the early part of Nero's Rome before persecution the idea of the rhetorical question is this if you are a zealot for good works, who will really come against you? If you are eager to do good in the way commended by the Bible, then there's really, generally, not going to be a lot of people who oppose you, who are eager to harm you. In our text today, Peter talks about situations where that will happen. And that's the point of these verses and the point of this new section until really the end of chapter 4. However, we should remember that the point of the Christian life is not to seek out conflict. Obviously, we should not seek out conflict in the church, but we should not seek out conflict with the world. We should trust that it will come But we should not be the instigators of that conflict. At the same time, we need to remember that the example held up for us to emulate is none other than the Lord Jesus, who did in fact suffer for doing righteousness. He suffered for righteousness' sake. And this is where Peter goes... In our section. This, this rhetorical statement, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It carries the flavor similar to, though not identical, to what Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you prioritize these things in your life, they can't make any of these things illegal. That's the idea. And being zealots for what is good does tie even this new section in to the main point that he's been making since the middle of chapter 2. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, here's what he says. And this is, this is why I'm titling the messages this way and have been for the last several weeks. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's where that idea of honorable conduct comes from. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We should be eager, pervi- uh, eager conveyors, if you will, of living righteousness, living out righteousness, living for the sake of righteousness. And he is opening up the possibility with this rhetorical question that suffering may come in certain situations. And so let's look at the first part of verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And here... Peter begins to show us why he is writing this new section. He says, for righteousness sake. And I think we need to be very careful here. We need to be careful that we do not define suffering for righteousness sake too broadly. And we need to not define it too narrowly. So first how, what what are some dangers of defining suffering for righteousness' sake too broadly There are many people who esteem themselves to be some kind of martyr for righteousness but in fact are not We also should not take this statement these verses as as the fullness of the bible's statement on suffering There's a lot more that the bible says What I'm getting at is there are different species of suffering. We can't just lump it all together. Yes, all suffering, indeed all things, fall under the promise of Romans 8.28. That God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But, not all suffering falls under the category of suffering for righteousness' sake. are a few examples. You are not suffering for righteousness if you're a jerk to people in the name of Jesus. We need to admit, brothers and sisters, that there is a Christian version of a social justice warrior, and it's where you treat people in kind. And some may think that having a winsome and kind and gracious approach towards the world and non-believers, even our opponents, is no longer rational given the evil of our day and age. But look, and and I get that. I, I understand how difficult things can be and how insurmountable the opponents to the gospel may appear to be in our time. Some of you may empathize with that sentiment. And in all fairness, it should be said that we Christians often lack backbone. We are often cowards when it comes to the gospel. We need to be bold. We need to act like men again. But that is, in my opinion, a false binary. It is not act like men on one end and be gracious and humble and respectful on another. They're all the same because the example is the Lord Jesus He was the manliest man who ever walked on the face of the earth and was the gentlest, kindest, and lowliest man who ever walked the earth. This is what Paul says to Timothy, his protege. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Consider Paul's life in that context and the ferocity of some of his opponents and the mistreatment he had to endure. And he even says, of all that, correct your opponents even with gentleness. So, If you do the opposite of all that, and people treat you poorly in response to your bad behavior, that's not suffering for righteousness' sake. It's also not suffering for righteousness' sake if you are sinning or have sinned grievously, and you're suffering the consequences of your sin. Consider the flavor of these verses from Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. They may may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. This is the suffering or the consequences that come because of our sin, because of our idolatry in the context of lamentations. So in one sense, it is suffering for righteousness' sake if you're suffering the consequences of your sin, but it's not because you have been righteous, it's to produce righteousness in you. It is because you have sinned, not because you did the will of God and now are suffering from the world. On a positive note, this is all under the heading of defining suffering for righteousness too broadly. Now, I also want to say, you are not suffering for righteousness in this sense and thus obligated to follow the narrow exhortations of this passage and what comes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. You're not obligated to just do that if you are suffering because of the sins of another person in an abusive or violently oppressive or controlling way. We can't lump everything in that category under suffering for righteousness. I want to tell you a personal story to make this make sense for you. I know that what I just said might be a little confusing, but this is extremely nuanced, and it only comes up when you're trying to encourage people who are suffering in a particular kind of way. This was when I was a teenager. Uh, What I just said about a rough-and-tumble Christian version of Social Justice Warrior, that was me as a teenager, And into my college years. And when I was a teenager, I overheard a conversation between my youth pastor and an older teen girl who was in the same youth group. And like all people who jump to conclusions and um, prefer to just give answers before they hear, I overheard her saying something to the effect that she was suffering and she was being uh, mistreated by someone. Looking back, I think it was probably her father. And without thinking, I just said, you're suffering for Christ. My youth minister in pastoral wisdom and care and love just turned and went like this. Hand over your mouth, brother. He didn't say that, but that's what I heard. And it cut me to the heart. And looking back, putting the pieces together, I probably think that young... That teenage sister of mine, sister in Christ, was probably being abused in some way. Maybe not physically or sexually, but some way. And so we can just look at this like, just have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Just honor Christ the Lord as holy, it doesn't matter. And we can just gloss over the complexities of some of these oppressions and violence and not exhort people to do the right thing. So so don't try to read yourself into this inappropriately, this suffering for righteousness' sake. The right thing to do, even if that is happening, is in your own heart, trust the Lord, but also show mercy to the wrongdoer in not letting them sin again. Get the authorities involved. Get the pastoral involvement involved where appropriate. Don't let the wrongdoer continue to build their condemnation against them. If it's up to you, if you can get out of it, this text, specifically this narrow sense of have no fear of them, nor be troubled, has been abused by pastors and counselors, seeing all suffering essentially as the same. Seeing it all through that lens and having no other answers really for those who suffer than just be patient, endure it, have no fear. That's not all the Bible says in response to suffering. So this, I know I'm going on for a little bit about this, but we need to have the proper category of what suffering for righteousness sake is or we won't understand this whole exhortation. Don't define it too broadly. Number two, we don't need to define it too narrowly, suffering for righteousness sake. To mean only persecution or only state-sponsored persecution. Consider the example of Job. There was no state involved. There was no official persecution. There was no trial. But nonetheless, he was suffering because he was righteous. That's the point of the book. The opposition from the enemy, this whole scene in heaven, is only happening because Job is righteous. even though it's not state-sponsored persecution, it's not from another person because he's righteous, it's because he's righteous. There is a maniacal, supernatural opposition to the people of God that you need to factor in in all of your suffering. The dragon seeks to consume the children of the woman. and This is a drama of violence that plays out over the course of church history. He hates us. And he will come at you and me with everything he can. It's all in God's providence. It's all in God's sovereignty. And that's part of the point of the book of Job as well. But much of the suffering you endure is because you're righteous, because you stand with Christ, even if it's not official persecution. Also, consider the category that we find in Psalm 73. This is what Asaph says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my hand clean, my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That is, in many ways, the lot of the righteous. The wicked get stronger and richer because they're wicked. And the righteous people, because they're righteous, are oppressed and brought down. The world system is stacked against us. That's the point. If you commit your life to have integrity and honesty, not cheating in one way or another, cutting corners, holding back wages, little slight compromises and injustice, you're not going to get ahead as much as those who do make those compromises. In general. I know the Lord blesses people immensely. But this is the general idea. It is easier to be wicked and wealthy than it is to be righteous and wealthy. That's the point. The deck is stacked against us. And if we commit to being righteous and not compromising in those ways, that suffering, that disadvantage that comes from that is, in fact, suffering for righteousness' sake. The whole world lies under the power of the enemy. All of it. So what is it then? What is suffering for righteousness' sake? We've already alluded to it so far. Since the example we are to follow is that of the Lord Jesus, as Peter explicitly states in chapter 2, we should look to the life of Jesus then to define what it means to suffer for righteousness' sake. And there are two senses in which we may suffer for righteousness' sake, looking at the life of Jesus. Number one, we can suffer mistreatment from others because we seek to do good. And that good can be very broadly defined. You can see this in the life of Jesus. It wasn't even necessarily attached to his specific ministry of reconciliation in his preaching, in his passion. He's trying to do all that God, the, the Father sent him to do, and then he runs across a person who needs help. And he's like, it's not my time, but I can't help myself. He's filled with compity, fi- filled with pity, filled with compassion, and he does good. And what do people do in response? They either ask for more, give us more bread, or the Pharisees and Sadducees start opposing Him because He did it on the wrong day. So you can suffer mistreatment from others because you do good. And then the second way in which Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake is that He suffered as part of God's plan to save sinners. This is obvious, of course. The cross was necessary In order to save you. And his death in our place didn't have to have anything to do with the good that he did in his life. He had to die in order to save us. So those are the two ways that we may suffer, like Jesus, for righteousness' sake. As a response from others, that could be people or the enemy himself, because we do good or we suffer in God's orchestrated plan to save sinners. Understand, I want you to hear this, Jesus sought to avoid both types of suffering. This passage is not saying lean in to suffering or to seek it out. That's not a biblical teaching. Even as He prayed in the garden, we see that he did not want to go through the suffering per se and that was the suffering that was going to produce salvation but in his life when it was inevitable when it was either fail to do what is good and skate by unnoticed or do good and suffer the consequences from men he chose to do good when it was clear that the choices were escape suffering on this hand or do the will of the father on this And He chose to do the will of the Father. And He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And thus, the foundation of our salvation was laid. And then we see this dynamic of blessing. He says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And I want to mention again, I want to underscore this idea that reward... And your reward for doing this, for living in line with the example of Jesus, does come with the promise of blessing. I'll say it again, as I said last week, you should want to gain a blessing as a result of living righteously. God is only honored by those who want to live a righteous life because they really want it. And all that it entails. You just have to define blessing biblically. He says, that you may obtain a blessing. Up in the passage that we looked at last week. This is the whole purpose. We need to remember this. Remember, remember, remember. We are called to this kind of life so that we may gain a blessing from God. It is not just that we are playing our part in a play to demonstrate God's glory and we've just got to put our heads down and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer waiting until the last day and we don't even know how it's all going to go. It may feel that way. Paul even says we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But this blessing that God promises, the most important aspect of it is this closeness with God. I've mentioned Job a lot. I'm reading a book on Job while preaching through these verses dealing with suffering, so it's been very helpful. Um, Here's what Eric Ortland says Job's constant desire is to enjoy relational rightness with God again. Job never once asks for his blessed life back. Isn't that amazing? His losses are enlisted as evidence only of his innocence. Not some secret desire to wrangle a comfortable life from God. Job, and this is me, that's the end of the quote. Job wants to be able to say from his heart, I am right with God. God approves of me. This is, I think, reflected in what he himself says. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He has hope. This is what he wants. He wants to know that God and him are not at odds, but they are at peace, even in view of his suffering. You've got to get this. And I have to say it, it may hit you the wrong way for me to say it this way, but you have got to have this settled in your heart and mind. God would not be good, which is to say that he would not really be God, if the righteous were always to suffer and never enter blessing. And look, I know that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. But if those who have trusted in Jesus and received his righteousness, and in God's eyes you are now more righteous than you can possibly imagine, if We are the ones who are doomed to suffer and to suffer and to suffer. And there is never a day coming when the tables turn and we get blessing from God. Then the Lord would not be good. You just have to keep in mind when that day is. The blessing now that we get is that even if we suffer for righteousness sake. We are blessed and we will be blessed. He is with us. He does not leave us as orphans. He assures us of His love in spite of our suffering and the rejection of the world. And one day, one day, He will vindicate us and welcome us into His kingdom. If He doesn't do that, He's not good. He says, you are blessed. That's another possible way to render it. As one commentator put it, we are pronounced as privileged recipients of divine favor. That he, he sees us and loves us and he assures of his, us of his fatherly affection and acceptance. The Spirit cries out with our spirit that we are in fact Children of God. That's the sense. That's the blessing that we have now as we wait for the day where the tables will turn. And understand, this suffering, the suffering that he's talking about is because we are right with God. They're entangled in that way. The idea, don't you see the comfort in this? For the one who trusts in the Lord, he or she can never truly be harmed. Even if, even if it all goes wrong, even if all we get in God's providence is nothing but a life like Job's, even worse than Job's, we know that the, lo- the eye of the Lord is on the righteous. And we get the blessing in the end. What can man do to me? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So now, armed with this right understanding of what kind of suffering it is we're talking about suffering, for righteousness' sake, we can look at how we are commanded to respond. He says, have no fear, nor be troubled. There is a strong indication that this is a quotation from Isaiah 8, verse 12, with a slight modification. Isaiah 8, verse 12, the second part says, "...and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread." Peter adds one word to give it a new sense. Do not fear their intimidation or do not fear their terror. It's it's a play on words because the word is the same, but he he changes the number and, and it's a little grammatical, but the sense is not only to just not fear what other people fear, but do not fear the fear that they're trying to put on you. That's the sense. He says, nor be troubled. The idea here is do not be dismayed. We run into this idea a lot through the Old Testament. This is again quoting from Isaiah 8, verse 12. Here's here's another example of this idea, idea from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Though outwardly things may be tumultuous, And while we may, or even will, have trouble in this world, the calling of the Lord upon the believer is to control what we can control inwardly and not allow our hearts to be dismayed. Peter was there on the lake, on the sea, and he was terrified of the storm. And he witnessed Jesus saying, Peace! Be still, resulting in a glassy calm immediately over the waters in obedience to the Messiah's voice. And now Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is relaying that same message, not to physical water, but to the sea of emotions in your heart with the same message to each of us. Peace. Be still. The problem today in Christian community is that very often outwardly things look okay and we say they're okay, but inside, in that sea of emotions and the postures of our heart, it is anything but calm. If someone were to peer inside, what would they see? And how do we get to this place in our hearts? How do we fight back against the hallowing dark and the onset of the raging chaos of Leviathan and the ferocity of the enemy himself? What are we to do in view of such hate and malice? In our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word here is literally sanctify. Sanctify the Lord as holy also a quotation from the very next verse in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. This is stunning because Peter takes a text where the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, If those of you who know a little bit about Bible and the name of the Lord, in that verse in Isaiah, it is the covenant name of God. And Peter takes that and he substitutes the tetragrammaton with the name of Christ, explicitly stating, even in this early document, Christ is Yahweh. Amazing. But the idea is this set Him, set Christ apart in your hearts as different from everything else. Sanctify Him. We obviously don't sanctify him in the sense that he sanctifies us, but in in one sense of setting apart, setting him apart in our hearts, that's what we ought to do. Is he on the throne in your hearts? As many people summarize this idea. He has made us his treasured possession. Do you and I treasure him? There is only one holy one. And here's the thing, you and I live in a time, in a place, where there are just so many interesting things. Sports, video games, info wars, real wars, diets, health, fitness, career, literature, family, whatever it is. And here's the thing, because we're such an affluent society, we can successfully chase all of them. None of those are bad inherently, but here's the difference. Recognizing that Jesus is Lord is not the same thing as loving the fact that he is Lord. Sanctifying him in your hearts as holy means that you exalt him in your hearts, that he is above everything else and you love him and his lordship more than anything else. Knowing about His kingdom and hoping that you're in His kingdom is very different than being eager to seek His kingdom as the burning passion of your heart. Young people, is this the desire of your heart? I remember when it was that this idea of seek first the kingdom of God captured my heart. Early seek the Lord. All of these things that our culture and maybe even some within your own family tell you are valuable to chase as ideals in your life are not worth even stubble compared to the glory of the kingdom of God. Sanctify the Lord. Honor the Lord as the only Holy One in your hearts. Is your life mission to gain Christ? Who else can fill your cup? Until it overflows. How do your life goals and plans and hobbies and time spent line up with the fact that you are commanded to sanctify the Lord Jesus as the only Holy One in your hearts? And the reason why I'm asking these questions. The reason why... I- Enter that excursus is to point out that it is because we don't sanctify the Lord in our hearts as holy. And so we fail that test in that way. And that is why we lack the strength to have fearless endurance and why we are dismayed. That's the point. That's the connection. Make him your one magnificent obsession. The most important thing about you is not your personality type. It is not your past and it is not what your future may or may not hold. The most important thing about you is what are you seeking? Seek first the kingdom of God. And so we see from the context of Isaiah chapter 8 and the verses that we just read that this idea of sanctifying the Lord as holy is closely related to the fear of the Lord. This is amazing and it is simple the solution to fear of people who may become our opponents because we are righteous and the solution to fear of the enemy and the fear of death who come against us as our enemies because we have aligned ourselves with the messiah is to fear someone who is unimaginably good the principle is that the state of your heart accords with the nature of whatever it is you fear You will become like those you admire and your heart will begin to mirror the nature of whatever it is you fear. So fear the Lord, honor him as holy, and you will begin to be like him from the heart. And that is the context. Understand, we're to follow the example of Jesus. So we need to be like him from the heart so that we can walk in his footsteps. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So, while we are seeking to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, placing Him on the throne and seeking Him and fearing Him alone internally, how should we be towards the world? Be ready, be prepared to make a defense. This text is not, frankly, about apologetics, though that could be an implication of the text, but we need to see it's not the point. Apologetics, for those of you who don't know, that's, the, that's in some ways the professional pursuit of making defenses of the faith on an intellectual, philosophical, or legal stage. That's not what this text is about. It could be an implication, not what it's about. The aim of this text is not to give you a license to go and dismantle and argue against any person who thinks anything in opposition to Christianity, because it's given to us in the context of hope. What is this hope business? Well, let's look back at First Peter chapter one, verses three through nine. though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You were born again to enter into your inheritance that right now takes the form of imperishable hope. There are a few prerequisites to understand this statement. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Number one, the prerequisite is that we are actually born again and loving Jesus and loving one another. We've entered this thing, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, and we are actually one of his, born again to this living hope. Number two, that we are actually enduring some kind of suffering for righteousness sakes that comes upon us because we do not participate In the evil of the world. And number three, that we endure this suffering in such a way that it creates a curiosity. And the world begins to ask us, why do you have such hope? And frankly, might I say that we've lost our way somewhere in those prerequisites. We do so many things to insulate ourselves And fight back against suffering for righteousness sake. That there is almost never an opportunity to have such conversations. Also, it is fair to say that a lot of the suffering that the church and those who are in it is enduring is not for righteousness sake, as we looked at, but is discipline. Current happenings in our own denomination show that to be the case. And when our walls and our fences fall down and we can't keep out suffering for righteousness sake and we have to bite the bullet, what we show, frankly, is often not hope. There is no hope generally. I know there are exceptions. I'm just saying generally in our nation, it seems to me that there is no hope for the world to see that is otherworldly. What Peter envisions is something entirely different. Our pattern of trusting the Lord and fearing Him alone is to create such a profound and clear and otherworldly hope and joy that those who see us, especially those in whom that the Lord is working, will come asking us to make it make sense to them. That's what's happening in this text. I want to offer an encouragement along these lines. Consider this, that the Lord may be, and I would say is, more intent on saving people than you are. He may be more eager to save people from His wrath than He is interested in keeping hardship and suffering out of your life. And that's... I think more profound than you may realize. Consider that all of it, all of it is Him working to save people and bring many sons to glory. The Lord will lose none of those that the Father has given him. And one of the ways that the Son will lose none of the Father that the Father has given him is to ensure that your witness to the world, our witness to the world, will create opportunities in our suffering for righteousness' sake to portray, to purvey hope to the world. And that it would create curiosity in them to ask us why we have such hope. Are we up for it? Those in the world, no matter how much they make fun of our beliefs or take offense at our message or revile us or treat us with malice, they have no hope. Every worldview other than Christianity ultimately breaks down into nihilism. There is a lack of hope in the world of pandemic proportions. Understand, what we should hold high is not just the cross that Jesus died not as a symbol or as a mere message, but we hold high our hope in the crucified and risen Messiah. It is the antidote to hopelessness and despair in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my concern, my honest observation, I know I don't know much, but this is just what I see, is that we're not getting asked very often about the hope that is within us. When was the last time that actually happened for you? When was the last time you didn't have to start a conversation, but people were curious enough because you exuded hope? When the world looks at us, I don't think they see a hopeful community. I don't think they see a joyful community. I would hope that we at this church are an exception. We still need to grow. I'm concerned that we, the church in our nation, are often bitter. We're selfish. We're argumentative. We're angry. We're lazy. We're interested in protecting ourselves and ours. We're petty. We're isolationists. We're rude. And this is why many will not believe the message of salvation is because they look at the people of God who are supposed to be the ones who have all this hope and they don't see any. I'm not saying we don't have it, but we don't do a good job of showing it. And I'm not asking you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and begin to show joy and love and hope and all of that. You can't do that. But if you are a believer, joy and hope And peace has dawned into your hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. Because you have been born again, not through perishable things, but by the imperishable Word of God. So lift up your eyes. Lift up your heads. Lift your drooping hands. Begin to enter into your inheritance of hope even now. We are not so weak and destitute. We have been made strong by the love of our God. And He has made us glad. Let us not fight against it anymore. We are almost home. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He says, we must do it with gentleness. It is almost as if Peter could anticipate how this passage about defending the faith could be taken the wrong way. We say this in sports and military lingo. You can finish the sentence for me. The best defense is a good offense. Yeah, that shows the percentages in our group who watch sports. But yes, Usually the idea is, well, if we're going to defend the faith, the best way to do that is to marshal our forces together and have a really, really good offense. So we never have to be on the defense. And if we do, it's just because they're trying to catch up with us. There are some people who take this summons to defend the faith in that same way. Instead of living a life of hope and peace and joy and answering questions of those who wonder at us. The problem, understand, is not so much the objective as it is the effect on our hearts. When we become the intellectual aggressors, chances are we will not be gentle in our posture towards others. This kind, compassionate, winsome, gentle approach gets a bad rap nowadays. It has been mocked by some as the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. But understand, that is not far from the truth. We are commanded to be kind. We are commanded to show perfect courtesy to all men. The word translated here, uh, it could be translated also meekness or humility, which implies that we are not just to have good manners towards other people in being gentle, but we are actually supposed to be humble towards them. Consider others more significant than yourself, then applies not just to the believing community, but to those outside the believing community as well. He also says respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. The word is literally fear, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that in a second. In the context, the people who are being talked about that we're supposed to show respect to, are the ones, or they are at least part of the same group, of those who treat us shamefully. Those who cause the suffering for righteousness' sake. They are, if if you could allow me to put it this sharply, they are the wicked. And we're to show respect to them. This escalations of terms is similar to the passage that we looked at last week. But on the contrary, bless. So it's, it's not that we should just not respond in kind, but we are actually supposed to find a way to bless people who revile us. And listen, I know that some of these themes are showing up every single week. I'll come back, like, it sounds kind of like the same message. I promise it's not. But maybe, I mean, this is a very long section of Scripture. And maybe it's there, and it was there for, if if the dating that I submitted to you is correct it was there to help them prepare for even worse opposition and maybe you you and i are hearing this and interacting with these ideas on a weekly basis as we go through these texts to prepare us for something i don't know what that might be but i'm not sure we're ready yet Showing respect to our opponents. Those who even revile our good behavior is actually nothing innovative or unique to Peter. This is exactly what Jesus says in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. But this I say to you who hear. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. For the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. As I said, the word here is fear. Uh, Some commentators then take that to mean that we should fear the Lord only. So, So while we're interacting with these people and giving an answer for our hope, be gentle towards them and fearful towards God. I'm not sure that that's what it means because that would be redundant. On the one hand, we're supposed to have no fear of them. But there's another sense in which fear can be used to mean something like respect as it's translated here in the ESV. So why why fear? Why fear them? It refers, as one commentator put it, to an attitude toward, towards others that is rooted in one's attitude towards God. You believe that every person you encounter is made in God's image and that what you say and how you convey the hope that we have may, in fact, be part of their eternal destiny. There is a level of fear there, a reverence towards another human being that we need to have. And this is the consequence. If we act in this way, he says, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This harkens back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so it is important to clarify here. The objective is the same, even if you suffer for righteousness sake. The objective is to get a person to a point where they would glorify God either now in conversion or on the day of vindication Note very carefully in the wording of this text that it is not your job to put anyone to shame. I want you to see this because I feel that some people do think that it is our job to shame our opponents. The context shows that what is happening is that as we respond with respect and gentleness, it creates a stage, if you will, a setting wherein there's tension Who's right? Who's right? Is is it those who trust the Lord and continue to do good and entrust themselves to Him who judges justly? Or is it the wicked who oppose those who do good and get richer and, and stronger because of wickedness? That's the question. And that question hangs higher and higher and more powerfully over the whole world until Christ returns. And He will render to each one according to His works. This idea of being put to shame or not being put to shame, this is a massive biblical theme. And there's two sentences that it almost always carries. The first is the court of public opinion. We see this in Acts, that the Sanhedrin can almost do nothing against the apostles, at least at first, because all the people held them in high regard. That as we do good, those who haven't given themselves over to wickedly oppose the purposes of God will see our good deeds and say, hey, why are you opposing these people? But the more important thing, of course, is Judgment Day. Even if the court of public opinion turns completely against us, there will be one court yet to be held where God will show that those who trusted Him and continued doing righteousness, even in the face of oppression, were right. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This text shows us that this, I, I guess I should say this first, it's interesting as a preacher to think about how different texts hit people. I've read th- this text many, many times in preparation for the series and then as we've gone through it, and I've always thought when I came to this first that it's kind of a Captain Obvious statement. Of course, Peter. Why even say verse 17, of course it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. But as I thought about it in preparation for this message, it's actually not all that obvious. Consider this, and I know I've referenced Job a lot, but this, this is the issue, isn't it? It's almost as if Job would have been okay if God were to show up and to point out some sin that Job was unaware of. What made Job's suffering so unbearable is that he didn't know if there was any sin or any wrongdoing. But what Peter is saying is that it's actually better to suffer for doing good. And I think for us, when we encounter hard situations or suffering, we thought, what have I done? And the point is, It makes it more frustrating to us when we can't point to something in our lives, some mistake or some miscalculation or some sin that we've done that we're being disciplined for. And here's the point of the passage. It's because you're righteous. If you're suffering for righteousness sake, then it's because you've aligned yourself with God and chosen to do good in the world. And that's why you're suffering. And Peter is saying, I think innovatively, it is better. That is better. Why is it better? This all seems pretty grim, right? Why is it better to suffer for righteousness, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil? Number one, because suffering for doing evil is remedial. It is not glorious or victorious. Number two, suffering for doing righteousness, for doing good, will result in blessing from God. You will be blessed. We saw that last week as well. He will rebalance the scales of justice. And number three, this is what Jesus did. God's will was always for salvation and reconciliation. And even through Christ's suffering for doing good, he saved people. I think when Peter says, if that should be God's will, I think he may be alluding back to the prayer Jesus prayed in the garden. but not my will, but your will be done. Seeing that it is better, being shown that it is better, we can have then the stability of soul where we can fearlessly endure whatever may come. The calm of that sea inside of us, that stability of soul, is your birthright, brothers and sisters. Don't you understand? It is there for the taking This is why we need good old songs that have been written in times of persecution and trial. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father forgive us. For trusting in our own strength. And for responding in poor ways to the world. Fill us with your love. Give us hope to portray to the world. And may you, through that hope that we show, even as we suffer for doing right, may you save many and bring many sons to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.